This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Your brain needs support. And new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L-theanine, and caffeine. Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus. Stay chill or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y dot com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, this is your host, David Kunzman with the New Books Network, and today we'll be talking with Nathaniel Vett with his new book, published 2022 by T&T Clark, Writing with Scripture, Scripturalized Narrative in the Gospel of Mark. Nathaniel is the Ishikar Fund Doctoral Research Fellow at the School of Divinity at University of Edinburgh. I hope you enjoy the interview. So we usually like to start our interviews by asking our guests, uh, how did they come to write uh, their current work? So uh, Nathaniel, how did you come to write uh, scripturalization in uh, Mark? That's a great question. Um, I guess like many biblical scholars, I was brought up in a church which knew a lot of the Bible, but actually knew very little about it. Um, so, you know, biblical passages were mostly used to adjudicate modern theological debates, that kind of thing. Uh, but when I first interacted with biblical scholarship, uh, principally through the works of James Dunn and E.P. Sanders, I discovered that I knew almost nothing about early Jewish and Christian literature. Uh, so I was encouraged to read the classic works of biblical studies, the you know well-known names like Reimarus and David Friedrich Strauss and Albert Schweitzer, uh, and then encouraged to read more recent scholars like Geza Vermesh and Amy Jill Levine and Paula Fredrickson and these books, especially the latter ones, prompted me to read more of the primary literature of early Judaism. So, you know, we're talking the Dead Sea Scrolls, Josephus, the Pseudepigrapha, and also rabbinic documents. Uh, and sort of all this together, instead of just being helpful background information for the New Testament, which is often how it's viewed, uh, these texts introduced me to the diversity and creativity of early Jewish literature of which the early Christian text was simply a small and at the time relatively insignificant part. So a lot of my work as a scholar is in trying to situate these early Christian texts as expressions of early Jewish writing, uh, which is what I'm doing in this book. So is it right to categorize the Gospels as a subset of Second Temple Jewish literature or should be seen as a different category? 
No, I, I think they fit very well within the sort of broad, diverse uh, array of early Jewish texts. So before you set up uh, the case that you make about how scripturalization is used in Mark, you uh, try to define scriptural- scripturalization and you is define two uses of it, the expositional and the compositional. Could you please elaborate on those different, yeah. different ones? Of course, of course. Uh, so these are two terms used by the Israeli scholar Devorah Demant to not just describe scripturalization, but just the general sort of exegetical use of scripture uh, uh, in early Jewish works. So uh, just to break down the two categories, the expositional use of scripture refers to the standard exegetical use of scriptural elements in an early Jewish work. So this would include formal citations, allusions, echoes, and the like. All of those would fall into that category. Uh, so this is when a scriptural passage or a story or, or a character is cited or alluded to in support of an argument or to interpret its meaning or apply it to a new situation. Uh, so we find this in all kinds of works in early Jewish literature. Uh, for example, the Pesha Habakkuk from the Dead Sea Scrolls is essentially a commentary that introduces the lemma of a passage from the book of Habakkuk, which is followed by the word pishro, which means something like the interpretation of which is. But you find similar examples in narrative works, apocalyptic, legal, uh, and liturgical documents. Um, But perhaps the best known example is the formula often found in the New Testament, kathoska graptai, or as it is written, which is used to introduce a citation or illusion by a speaker or an author. So when scholars talk about the interpretation of the Jewish scriptures or Old Testament or what they call New Testament exegesis, uh, they're usually talking about the expositional use of scripture. But this differs from uh, the compositional use of scripture, which uh, Devorah Demont also talks about this refers to when elements of scriptural language or, or narrative are used to shape a new work. Uh, so in early Jewish literature, this is best seen in the works often called rewritten Bible, uh, which is a somewhat unfortunate and anachronistic term that describes several works around the turn of the common era that retell large sections of scriptural narrative. Um, So here the scriptural stories serve as the model for a whole new narrative. A famous example is the Book of Jubilees, which uh, is still part of the canon for Ethiopic Jews and Christians. Uh, But this book uses the narrative of Genesis and Exodus as its model, but thoroughly transforms it into a new work with its own aims and ideology. Uh, But within Jubilees, there are also new stories that have been pieced together out of scriptural elements. So you have stories of patriarchs like Noah and Abraham performing various festivals and sacrifices according to the language of Leviticus and Deuteronomy. Uh, And scriptural language is also repurposed in the language and the speech of Jubilee's characters. So you have uh, God using the language borrowed from Isaiah or Moses speaking the words of the Psalms, that kind of thing. So here this use of scripture is not explicitly exegetical, 
rather the use is subordinate to the purpose of this new work, in, in this case, Jubilees. But this can also be seen in other early Jewish documents like the legal texts of the Dead Sea Scrolls or liturgical works like uh, the Psalms of Solomon. Uh, and it can also be found in narrative works of historiography. Uh, and my book is primarily concerned with these smaller compositional examples, um, like a brief episode about a historical or legendary figure, which is modeled on a specific scriptural story uh, or told using identifiable scriptural language. Also in the introduction, you give a survey of previous scholars who dealt with um, uh, references of the Old Testament in the New especially the Gospels, uh, how does scripturalization differ from scholars like Dodd or Sol? Yes, that's a great question. Um, I guess when it comes to scholarship on the use of Jewish scriptures in Mark, which we think is our earliest gospel, scholars have basically fallen into one of two camps. uh, And both of these camps have focused on the expositional use of scripture. So as we were talking about earlier, this is how the Jewish scriptures were interpreted exegetically by the author of the gospel. Uh, So one of these camps follows in the tradition of, as you mentioned, C.H. Dodd, the great Welsh scholar. Uh, And these scholars tend to see all of Mark's use of scripture as fitting into a conceptual framework or a, a schema of prophetic fulfillment. For example, uh, many see the composite citation attributed to Isaiah at the beginning of the gospel as programmatic for everything that follows. Uh, And this approach has some strengths. So, uh, for example, passages about the wilderness, especially from Isaiah, appear to have been quite important for our author. Uh, But one issue I have with these approaches is that they often explain a little too much. So if you start with the belief that all of Mark's citations of scripture fit into an overarching framework, then you are going to interpret absolutely everything that way, uh, and you are less likely to allow for differences in Mark's writing, which leads me to the second major camp, which follows in the vein of the German scholar Alfred Zuhl. Uh, And now these scholars don't see any overarching framework in Mark's use of scripture. Rather, it is ad hoc and atomistic, which which means basically passages were routinely taken out of context and uh, applied willy-nilly when the situation called for it. Uh, And there are examples of this kind of use of scriptural material in early Jewish literature. This this is quite common. And many examples in the Gospels seem to fit into this category. But again, uh, both the Dodd camp and the Zul camp limit the discussion to passages which explicitly set out to interpret scripture. In other words, we're still talking about the expositional use of scripture. So relatively few scholars have asked whether Mark also uses the scriptures compositionally, that is to shape stories or create new ones from scratch. So my next question would be, uh, how does one identify scripturalization? What is the criteria? Yes, uh, great question. It's always important to have criteria when you're identifying, you know, one text using another. Um, So scripturalization 
uh, I use it as a particular kind of compositional use of Jewish scriptures. Uh, so this is when recognizable scriptural language or motifs are repurposed in a new work. Uh, for example, in order to supply the language uh, for a speech or plot structure for a story. Uh, and I owe the term to Judith Newman, uh, who has used it to describe how prayers adopted a scriptural style during the Second Temple period. And I'm making the case that early Jewish narratives also adopted a scriptural style, borrowing plots and language for new stories in ways that don't always actively seek to interpret the scriptural source. So sometimes the scriptural elements are simply used aesthetically, you know, just to fill up the blank material of the story. So I guess it leads to the question, how does one identify these scripturalized narratives? Uh, well, there's the obvious stuff. So the scriptural model must be prior to the text in question. Uh, it's quite obvious, but still needs to be said. And also must be an identifiable literary unit in and of itself. Uh, there also has to be a sufficient number of key words, phrases, structural similarities in common that just couldn't be explained apart from literary dependence. Uh, so this could be a verbatim phrase or a cluster of plot details that are just not found anywhere else. And importantly, for, for my volume, a scriptural model is most likely to lie behind a text when it has been used as a model for other texts. So my book especially looks at a variety of early Jewish texts alongside Mark. So here I'm thinking of Pseudophilo, the Genesis Apocryphon, First uh, Maccabees, Judith, and the Testament of Abraham. So going into those other Second Temple works, uh, could you uh, elaborate on how scriptalization is used in just, say, the, the Genesis Apocryphon? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, the Genesis Apocryphon is a very interesting work. It's a text which just uh, survives in the Dead Sea Scrolls. Uh, it's written in Aramaic, but it roughly follows the plot of Genesis. Um, but in addition to that, it shares a great amount of material with the Book of Jubilees, which we were discussing before, uh, as well as quite a lot of material from the Enochic corpus. Uh, and the, it basically tells the narrative of Genesis from a first-person perspective. So you have Noah describing what happened to him, saying, you know, I did this, then I did this, then the Lord appeared to me. Um, and there is one particular story that I'm interested in uh, where Moses has, oh, sorry, Noah has a revelation from God uh, where he is promised land and encouraged to walk through the length and the breadth of the land. And then the Lord appears to him and says, do not be afraid. Uh, and this is particularly interesting because these are the words and roughly the plot of God appearing to Abraham in Genesis 13 to 15. Uh, so here you see Abraham and Genesis 13 to 15 used as a model uh, to describe God's covenantal relationship with Noah earlier in the Genesis narrative. And this has a great exegetical payoff uh, for the author of the Genesis Apocryphon, because essentially 
The promise of land to Abraham is not just a promise to Abraham himself, but it's a promise that was actually grounded in Noah, Abraham's ancestor. So uh, in that sense, it paints a much broader picture uh, than the Genesis, Genesis narrative initially does. Could you, just for one more example, could you elaborate how, just say in Maccabees, how uh, scripturization was used? Of course, yeah. Well, this is a very different text. So uh, in some of my examples, like Pseudophilo or, or the Genesis Apocryphon, these are texts that are mostly concerned with Jewish scriptural narratives. They're roughly retelling the same stories which appear in those prior texts. But the book of First Maccabees, of course, you know, propagandistic historiography about the Hasmonean family. Uh, but in it, nonetheless, you have these episodes of characters doing things that famous figures in the Jewish scriptures have done. So uh, there is uh, an example where Judas Maccabeus uh, comes with his band of uh, militia warriors to a city called Ephron. And it says that they could not go to the right or the left of it, but had to go through it. And then they request a passage through the city saying, will you allow us to go through on foot, essentially, and pass by to get to our land? Uh, but the city denies their request. Uh, and then, you know, mayhem breaks loose. And there's this huge battle. Uh, but of course, Judas Maccabeus prevails and they kill every Ephronite, this phrase, by the edge of the sword. Uh, and now people who know Deuteronomy would know that this is what Moses does to Sion in Deuteronomy 2. So same thing happens. They come to a city. They cannot go to the right or to the left of it. So they request a peaceful passage through so that they can pass by on foot to get to their land. But the request is denied. So what happens? Of course, Moses puts everyone to the sword. So here you have this story of, you know, the great lawgiver serving as a model for Judas Maccabeus, this zealot who has upheld the law for Judeans uh, in the second century. So this is an example of scripturalization happening in a historical text for a historical figure. Uh, so it's very possible that there was an altercation in Ephron, but the details of the story have been borrowed from Deuteronomy in this instance. So another scholar who uses maybe what's similar to scripturalization is uh, Dennis R. MacDonald in his Mimesis Theory, in which he talks about how the gospel writers actually used uh, the Homeric epics and Hellenistic literature to construct their gospels. Uh, can one still hold your view of scripturalization and uh, find fruit in Dennis R. MacDonald's Mimesis Theory? Or are they just incommensurable with each other. Yes, I, I think it's possible. I, I am talking about a, a different uh, compositional technique here. So mimesis refers to the imitation of texts in, in Greco-Roman writing. And the most famous example of this is Virgil's imitation of the Odyssey in the Aeneid. So not only is the general plot of the Odyssey followed in the Aeneid, but individual episodes are modeled on famous Homeric passages. And this is helpful for us 
understanding how Mark used Jewish scriptures. But in my study, scripturalization is a specifically early Jewish phenomenon as it concerns the core texts and traditions of early Judaism. But it does have many points of contact with the broader Greco-Roman phenomenon of literary imitation or, or mimesis. So some scholars, like you said, have attempted to draw a more explicit connection between mimesis and Mark's composition. So as you mentioned, Dennis MacDonald has made the case that Mark, like Virgil, was actively trying to emulate the Homeric corpus. And I I think this is certainly possible with some of Mark's sea voyages. There are certainly some Homeric overtones to those, but... Uh, An even more compelling case is actually made by Adam Wynne, who thinks that the Elijah-Elisha cycle in 1 and 2 Kings was the mimetic source for much of the gospel. Uh, And I agree with Adam that 1 and 2 Kings lie behind several key episodes in Mark, but I think uh, we can explain it with an explicitly Jewish literary phenomenon in scripturalization. Uh, This just helps narrow down the focus because we're looking at texts which are using the same literature and traditions to shape new works. So I guess the next question would be, how does this cash out to other Gospels? Uh, Could scripturalization be applied to Matthew, Luke, John, maybe other uh, extra canonical gospels like Philip, Thomas, uh, Gospel Mary Magdalene? Yeah, yeah, that's a really good question. Um, I think this is especially the case with the passion narrative. So, um, Mark's passion narrative is the most scripturalized part of the gospel. You have details from the Psalms. Zechariah, Daniel, and elsewhere, all woven seamlessly and constantly into the narrative, uh, especially in the crucifixion scene. So uh, Matthew, Luke, and I think John as well, know Mark's gospel and expand on it by adding more scriptural details. So they often expand on Mark's scripturalization, and they also add prophetic fulfillment formulae, which Mark often doesn't have, in order to draw out the significance of Mark's scriptural details. Uh, And we actually also see this happen to other Markan stories. For example, uh, in the Gospel of John, you have more details from 2 Kings 4 added to Mark's story of Jesus multiplying bread like Elisha. Uh, And you also have the Jewish scriptures serving as a model for completely new stories, not found in Mark. So most famous example of this would be Matthew's infancy narrative. A lot of those stories seem to be composed out of scriptural material. But as you ask, this can also be seen in non-canonical works. I think uh, off the top of my head, the Proto-Evangelium of James, uh, I think, has quite a few scripturalized narratives which are clearly created uh, out of passages in uh, Jewish scripture. Uh, And eventually Mark itself would become the subject of scripturalization. So my book actually ends with a passage from the Arabic infancy gospel, uh, wherein Mary performs an exorcism for a naked woman who is chained and living among tombs, which is a story clearly modeled on Jesus' exorcism of the Gerasene demoniac. 
so this compositional technique of telling a new story in scriptural language actually continues well into the Middle Ages in both Jewish and Christian literature. But the Gospel of Mark fits squarely into a particular early Jewish manifestation of this technique. So I think that's all the time we have for today. We, we usually like to end the interview by asking our guests uh, any future projects they're working on or anything they're currently working on. Of course. Um, in my postdoc at the School of Divinity at Edinburgh, I'm actually doing something quite different. I've been researching the virtues of gratitude and loyalty in Christian and Muslim traditions. Um, these are, and these are obviously two virtues which were extremely important in the Greco-Roman world at the time of the New Testament. So my colleague at Edinburgh, Mona Siddiqui, and I actually have an edited volume on gratitude coming out with Cambridge University Press later this year. Uh, And it basically explores how gratitude, despite being considered a a virtue, uh, can also be a burden and bring about inequality between parties. So we have some amazing scholars in the volume, and I'm really looking forward to that coming out. At the same time, I'm continuing uh, continuing my work on situating the Gospels within early Jewish writing. So for my next project, I am comparing the Gospels to other late first century Jewish works responding to the destruction of the temple in Jerusalem. So I'm thinking of 4th Ezra, 2nd Baruch, and Josephus's war. And I'm working with the hypothesis that the gospel genre itself is an organic response to the fall of Jerusalem and an attempt to explain the tragedy by narrating their Messiah's fateful journey to Jerusalem. So that's what I'm working on now. Well, thank you, thank you, Nathaniel, for the interview, and I uh, hope to see you in the future. Thank you. Likewise.